Have you been searching for the best ticket deals around? Well, look no further. With TixFlix, the price you see is the price you pay. And TixFlix just happens to have over $6 billion in ticket inventory just waiting for you. They absolutely mean it when they say every ticket, every venue, everywhere. And you can save even more with promo code PULSE in all caps to save you 5% off your total purchase. Just go to TixFlix.com and click the search bar. Search events based on your geographic location. Pick the show you want and BAM! It's showtime. Sporting events, Broadway shows, concerts and more with TixFlix.com. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for the email newsletter so you can stay up to date on the latest news and savings with TixFlix. That's TixFlix.com. T-I-X-D-L-I-T-Z.com. Every ticket, every venue, everywhere. you all to meet the press slam this week we have an esteemed podcast host i am your host danny kukler and my guest this week is the host of the stick to wrestling podcast with sean goodwin on the arcadian vanguard network and a frequent guest on the 605 super podcast and exile on bass street with chris Zellner. and he's an all-around good guy and a tennessee basketball fan he is john McAdams. Meet the Press Slam. I love it. Yes. Yes, I came up with that name sort of like on the fly almost. Like, I I was like, why has no one ever come up with Meet the Press Slam? <laughs> you know, as a podcast name. So hey, it's a good I one. Took it. I took it. <laughs> because it's hard to find creative podcast names because everyone and their mom has a podcast. You have a podcast, for God's sake. You're on about three of them. Uh, I mean, I've got, uh, quote-unquote, my own. It's called Stick to Wrestling. Uh, Sean Goodwin is the co-host with me, and the, the Stick to Wrestling part is kind of a an inside rib. There's a guy who does a Stick to Football podcast that I asked permission if he, if um I could use that one. And, you know, just whenever some you say something off the off the grid that someone doesn't like, like, hey, Stick to Wrestling. So that's what, what I kind of named it after. Yeah. Let's get right to the questions here. My first question to you is that you've traveled all around the country and the world for wrestling. What are your, some of your favorite places and venues and places of interest in relation to wrestling history? Well, not really the world, um, just the United States. Um, I, I used to have this idea that I would go to uh, Japan with Dave Melcher and do one of his trips, but that, that never happened. And for good reason. It's just, you know, that would never be my priority, quite frankly, to spend yeah. Uh, you know, say, spend a year or two saving money for something like that. I'd rather be on the beach. But anyway, um, I would, you know, I'm very lucky that I've gotten to see a whole lot of wrestling from a whole lot of venues. I would say if I had to just pick one that I was the luckiest to go to, it would be the uh, tapings uh, for the for the Memphis Saturday wrestling show. Whoa. What was that like? Just... Just feeling the air, feeling feeling smoke and all, and feeling all the energy at, at a taping for that. Well, yeah, I mean, it's such a, le- a legendary venue. The um, I'm trying to think of the name of the station, and for whatever reason, I can't. Um, but, you know, I, I got my picture taken with Lance Russell and Dave Brown on the set. 
and I lost the picture. What, what a nightmare, but uh, it was a lot of fun. I got to go with a lot of my friends, and it's just one of those things. It was like a, such a bucket list thing that I got to do. I got to be part of that. Um, Sid, uh, whatever he was calling himself, Sid Vicious at the time, made his debut. It was during the uh, – it was 1988. It was during uh, Robert Fuller's run as Booker, which I didn't think was very good. But at the same time, I got to do it. I got to visit that hollowed ground. I also got to go to Madison Square Garden and see a wrestling show. Yeah. And I've been to, you know, countless number uh, shows at the Boston Garden. So, I mean, I, I went to the Mid-South Coliseum in Memphis. So I, there are some places I, I so wish I would have gone to. I mean, it was before my time at the Olympic in Los Angeles. I would die to go to see that. Yeah. Who do you think was the best booker in Memphis? In your humble opinion? In my humble opinion, I think Jerry Lawler was the booker when Eddie Gilbert was there in early 1988. And actually, you know what? The more I think about it, I think Bill Dundee was booker in late 85, early 86, which is my favorite uh, run in Memphis. I'm going to go with Dundee. you go with Dundee, not Jerry Jarrett. Wrestling of Jerry Jarrett was a great booker. Lawler was a great booker. I mean, and they did it right. I thought their system was perfect where every six months they just traded off no matter what was going on, and it kept things fresh. So I am from Philadelphia, personally. I'm a 23-year-old um, myself. I know I'm making you look old. <laughs> no, but, that's, that's easy to do. But you mentioned to me in our direct messages setting this up that you've been to the Spectrum, Civic Center, and Veterans Stadium. What specific memories do you have of those venues? Well, I'll start with the with uh, Veterans Stadium. I, I went to a Phillies game there in 88, which wasn't really memorable, but I went to the Great American Bash in 1986, and that was the one where the State Athletic Commission was really ready to stop the show because of all the excessive blood. Um, <laughs> the Pennsylvania State Athletic Commission, the greatest athletic commission of all time. Oh, <laughs> uh, they're they're right up there with New York and New Jersey, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, like, how did ECW got away with half the shit that with the Pennsylvania have State Athletic Commission? That is an excellent question. I think the answer is because the Athletic Commission was a lot more. I mean, JJ Binns, I don't think, was around in the nineties. So it was just kind of a different ball game. But I've never seen the point of an athletic commission uh, for wrestling. Um, I, I, you know, basically you are a wrestling promotion is held to the taste and standards of usually of an older or middle-aged man whose only qualification was he's kind of friendly with the governor of whatever state we're talking about. Yup. And you, and it's an appointed job. It's not a job you vote on. So no. So it's very easy to suck up to somebody and say, "Hey, let me get control of that rat." Yeah, my kids have a WWF action figure. I'm qualified to be a state athletic commission. It's, it's literally like that. Yeah, civic center. Um, I have got, I went to, I want to say three or four, maybe even more than that, um, NWA shows at the Civic Center. I mean, living in Metro Boston, the NWA did not come up here very often. Their, their first show was in 87, 
and they ran like three or four shows between like uh you know, during my, my peak years as a fan. So before then, if you wanted to see any NWA wrestling, you were getting in the car and going, going for a drive to Villiers, Baltimore. Um, we got to see a show the night before the Great American Bash in 1989 at the Civic Center, and it was just an awesome show. Uh, Ricky Steamboat and Lex Luger tore it up. Sting had a really good match against um, Terry Funk. And right in front of me, Jim Cornette blew out his knee uh, wow. in a six, in a yeah, in a ten. I think it was a six man tag, and he was just the manager. But I mean, it happened right in front of me, and it, it looked so real. He was screaming, holding his knee, going, "God damn, Terry Gordy, Jesus Christ!" And, you know, and it was right before the big match against Paul E. So it didn't, you know. But it was it was a good it was always a good time. I always had fun at the Civic Center. Wasn't there a scaffold match at the uh, Civic Center? If I re- recall correctly, there probably was one, although I did not see it live. I mean, they took the um, the Midnight Express against the Road Warriors scaffold match around the horn in late 1986, early 1987. Yeah, you you put the two greatest tag teams, the two most over tag teams, and put them in the most limiting match. Yeah, that that sounds right. Uh, you know, wrestling. The thing about wrestling is important to capture a fan's imagination because if you had never seen a scaffold match before you'd be like oh my god this is going to be the craziest thing in the world they're going to be 30 feet up in the air throwing themselves off oh yeah and then you get to the reality and the reality is a bunch of guys scared to death and who can blame them crawling around yeah like the best ones were those TNA elevation axes in like oh five oh six. Um, oh yeah like those were the best ones because those guys were actually working <laughs> yeah the, you know but but it, it it's really like you want to exceed your expectations with the scaffold match because it's like it's a pretty low bar to set <laughs> oh yeah I mean like I said you know you don't know what it's going to be until you see it so in your imagination, you're thinking, you know, this is going to be the greatest thing ever. I say the same thing about battle royals and cage matches. Uh, battle royals seems like the greatest thing in the world. Everyone, all of the stars in the promotion are in the ring at once, and they're all fighting. And when the match actually takes place, that's not what goes on at all. Yeah, the battle royal is just a bunch of hits and kicks. And even I'm behind the scenes at the Monster Factory, and I'm like, and they say, keep it simple in the Battle Royal. Do not do spots. <laughs> and, it, it's true. Same thing with cage matches. You think, you know, these guys are going to be like animals in a cage fighting to death, and that's just not how it works. In the WWF, at least. <laughs> oh, yeah, that that's definitely what I was referring to. Oh, the, the, the NWA is still cage matches. You had um, Tully and... Uh, Magnum just beating the living shit out of each other. That's what a true cage match should be. Like, with the railroad spikes and everything. Not the Escape the Cage Bruno San Martino special. No. And I remember, you know, I had had been a wrestling fan. I started being a wrestling fan kind of hardcore in 1976. And any time they announced a cage match, I was like, well, you know, oh my God, this is going to be the greatest thing in the world. And then 1982, I saw my first cage match, which was Tony Atlas against Jesse Ventura in Boston. That must have sucked. 
Oh, I mean, just think about it. Now we're, we have two really bad workers. I think people forget how bad Jesse was in the ring. He was beyond awful, and it, it just wasn't that good. Now, and I was kind of like, okay, well, maybe the next one will be, will be better, and it wasn't. Yeah, what was the next one? Out of curiosity. Oh, oh man, now you're putting me on the spot. Um, When was the next cage match I saw? Because they really didn't do them that often in Boston. It might have been the next uh, – uh, it might have been one I saw on TV. That's a really good question. I, I don't know. It might have been – it really might have been WrestleMania 2 with Bundy and Hogan in the cage. But that was a good cage match, I thought. Um. Bundy and Hogan. Because it, wasn't it terrible. Yeah, it wasn't terrible. Just um, when I first started watching wrestling, they had Stan Hansen uh, against Bruno Sammartino advertised in the cage in Boston. And, I mean, you know, they did the thing where Hansen had broken Bruno's neck. Right. And you'd think Bruno wanted to literally kill this guy. And so you, you're dying to see this match. And like I said, it it just, you know, from I can't imagine it being that good. I saw the one uh, on film from Madison Square Garden. It was fine, but it wasn't what you imagined it would be, like two guys like literally trying to kill each other. And it's also akin to the WWF style back in the day. Um, the Spectrum. Um, you saw shows there as well as I wrap up the second question here. Uh, the Spectrum, that must have been the fun, because that's that's the most longest-standing building there at the sports complex before that got demolished in 2009. Yeah, I went in, oh, man, you know, I went to a wrestling show. It was in 88, uh, summer of 88, and I'm trying to think. I think we saw, Sa- yeah, it was Savage and DiBiase in Philly. And I don't remember that much about it because it's, yeah, I've seen so many shows and had a lot going on that weekend. We saw the NWA. We went to a Phillies game. We went to an Orioles game. Um, oh, yeah. But, you know, I, I managed to you know get that on the checklist that, yeah, I got to see a show at the Philadelphia Spectrum. I was a little bit surprised um, because the crowd, I want to say, was like seven or 8,000. Um, so a lot of empty seats. But It's a smaller building than the Wells Fargo Center. If I yeah. remember correctly, I think that is correct, and I was—I think it was a combination of things. It was the summer, and the WWF was on a little bit of a downswing. Savage was a little bit of a disappointment at the gate as a champion, right? And Savage and DiBiase would have better house show matches than actual TV matches. Oh yeah, I mean that was that in the best main event run. In the Hogan era, it was either that or Savage Steamboat. Did they do main events with Savage Steamboat? I don't recall that. You know what? I I think in the B buildings they did do Savage versus Steamboat in the main events. Actually, I think no, they didn't do Savage Steamboat as, as a main event in Boston. So I might be wrong there. But I think in the in the in the B buildings like Cedar Rapids or whatever. Oh yeah, had, yeah. So I guess we're going with Savage DiBiase then because they were going they were going to Madison Square Garden and the Spectrum and Boston Garden, et cetera. They had that cage match back in the day. Um, I know you recently talked about it on your show, like Savage and on episode forty of Stick to Wrestling. Um, I was listening to that earlier today, believe it or not. Oh, thank you. Yeah. 
And you know, Savage, I mean, we're talking about two, you know, generational talents. I mean, Savage and Di- both Savage and DiBiase were two of the greatest workers ever. And the WWF was not a work rate promotion. It never was. And it certainly wasn't in the Hogan era. And here you have two guys who have been, you know, two of the best workers anywhere, Japan, NWA, and they're going around the horn in the WWF. So that was that was a special time. Yeah, and DiBiase wasn't really work. He was working more as a gimmick at that time. Oh, I mean, he was still an excellent in-ring wrestler. I think I think DiBiase is one of those guys. It's hard to call him over underrated because you know he's mentioned stuff. Yeah, he, he get you know he gets um a lot of credit, but on, on some level, sometimes I don't think he gets enough credit. He was a phenomenal in ring performer. Yeah, I I agree with that. Um, I've seen some of the mid south stuff, and it blows you away. Yeah, um, in my opinion, he is the best heel in the history of the business. I've I've said this before, and we're not talking about the million dollar man gimmick. We're talking about like 1983, 1984, you know, just Ted DiBiase. Coal Miner's uh, Glove. Yeah, uh, what was the glove's name? Uh, I'm trying, he had a name for the glove, and he, the guy just was morally bankrupt. He was exactly what a heel was supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah, it's just exciting. What about classic wrestling excites you more than the Bonder product? Is it the sense of kayfabe or the sense of realism or another factor? It's another factor. Um, I think I, I enjoy it more. It was, you know, it was, it's easy. It's almost easy to say it, it was part of my everyday life growing up. Right. Um, we're talking, I really fell in love with it when I was 10 years old and I was still in love with it like 15, even 20 years later. But I think part of that is, you know, you're a kid growing up and you're you're seeing the world through the eyes of a child. And I'm not even saying that in, in a, a condescending no, or insulting no. manner. I, I understand mean, what you're saying, honestly. Yeah. When, I mean, when you first see wrestling, this was for oh four for me. Um, uh-huh. um, and you you see it and you're like mesmerized by the senses. And some and somebody who has autism or autism spectrum disorder like I have, um, it's amazing like how how you get sucked into that. Yeah, yeah. It, it, you you find yourself in this bizarre world of these characters where there's good guys on one side and bad guys on the other side, and there is an absolute line dividing them. And, you know, the characters and the storylines, you just get drawn in. Yeah, and, and it's an exact science almost. I had that sense until about when I saw the Harley race. Um, <laughs> this was what, how I found out wrestling was a work, John. Remember the Harley race stunt grandma special, how Secrets of Pro Wrestling? They, I, I do. They aired it before SmackDown on my network TV. They dubbed it like the wrestling block. That's uh, weird. It was weird as hell. And I watched this. I'm like, okay. Wrestling's fake. Not like my parents already told me that, but wrestling's fake. 
You know, I remember someone telling me it was my my old friend who's no longer with us, Harry White. He he put it the best way possible. He's like, you know, yeah, the spots are scripted and all that, but yet people, it's in just how do you, how do people really go through life thinking that no one ever gets hurt? It, look at the things these guys do. If you go out there night after night doing the, these things, of course someone's eventually going to get hurt. Of course it's going Especially to be yeah. I mean, nowadays... Everything makes cake. Yeah. Everything. Your small shindy in, in Bumblefuck, Iowa. Mm-hmm. I already did the expletive tag, so <laughs> screw it. Um, Bumblefuck, Iowa will make cake, and it will be streamed, and it will be on YouTube. Yep. I, I can't imagine... What it must like for, must be like for Danny, people of your age, where you know if you want to see wrestling right now, you're gonna to get to see wrestling. I mean, me growing up, we got rest, we got one hour of wrestling a week, and that was it. And if you were not in front of that division at eleven o'clock on Saturday, you didn't get wrestling for a week. I couldn't imagine that, honestly. I can't, I can't grasp, I can grasp it because. I hear you, Brian, Barry, Baldwin talk about it all the time because I listen to the podcast and I listen and I listen like a good soldier because I'm like I'm like interested in wrestling history and actually preserving the actual history of the business and not what WWE wants to perceive as wrestling history, um, and that's a huge problem as well the battle between WWE and the real historians, but we can get into that later. Um, and I appreciate all that stuff, you know, but I couldn't really grasp it, you know. I mean, I, I've talked about this before. I mean, I remember getting my first VCR in 1985 and being able to go out and, and rent a tape and just being able to watch wrestling anytime I wanted to. And it was just, it was a completely new world. It was crazy. Yeah. What was your first VCR, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, the first tape I rented was the first WrestleMania. And I think it was, I think, I think it was one of like two tapes that the video store had. Um, I, I think, you know what? I know it. I rented both of them at once. It was the first WrestleMania and the tape that Bill After uh, put out, uh, the Pro Wrestling Illustrated tape. I forget the name of it. Oh, yeah. Bill was a good friend of mine. Um, I could ask him always um, what that tape was. Um, okay. I mean, it, it, it's common. It's out there. Um but it was, you know, they had like highlights of, of Star KD3 and all kinds of other good stuff. It was Bill After and someone else sitting on the TV set chatting and showing highlights. And I was able to actually dub both of those. And it was crazy. It was like, you know, wow, now I can watch the first WrestleMania literally anytime I wanted to. Lords of the Ring. That's what it was called. Oh, yeah. Lords of the Ring. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's what you mean. Um, I don't think it's online anywhere. Uh, probably not. So, so it's a different factor for you, and I, I really respect that. No, that's cool, man. I mean, like I said, I, I envy kids 
today, I mean, I, I wish I had the stuff that, that that's around today when I was growing up. But, you know, I guess maybe I appreciate it more this way. Right. Um, so you've been doing a series with Chris Zellner that I highly suggest everyone listen to on Next Island Battery, where you've been going through your best of 80s, 1980s compilations. What about those 80s compilations excited you, the matches or the angles? Well, to answer your question, I've always been more of an angles guy than a matches guy. Um, I, I've always I've always liked that, you know, that whole what's going to happen next storyline bit. But it, it's funny, Chris came up with the idea to go through tapes I made back in the 80s and 90s which were just, you know, okay, I don't know what else to do with this match, so I'll put it on this tape, or, you know, call it the best of the 80s. It was Chris's idea. And he's like, you know, I want to do this show, I want to do this concept. And I was I was so, I wasn't even lukewarm to it. I was like, I, I didn't understand what he was going to do. But I put my face, you know, I didn't get the concept basically coming in. But I said to myself, okay, Chris is excited about this. Let's give it a try. He knows what he's doing, and it, it just turned out to be a really good series, I think. So I, I was right in trusting him. Yeah, Chris Zellner, I'm having him on tomorrow for my for Meet the Press Slam, and I, I can't wait to talk to him about like like what lessons he's learned from doing Between the Sheets and all that great stuff that he does because that man is a beacon of knowledge. He really is, I, and he's a really good guy on top of everything. Yeah, I did my, I did my first podcast ever with him. I think it was 2016. Yeah, uh, we just sat there for three hours talking about nothing but Butch Reed and his career. I remember that. That was an exile. That was an exile, and Butch Reed is one of those wrestlers that one of the most underrated wrestlers of that time period. Yeah, Reed, I think, could and should have been so much more than he was. And I, I mean that as a compliment. Um, it looked like he was going to be Mid-South's answer to Hulk Hogan, like uh, right around the end of 84, early 85. And apparently he had some pro uh, personal problems that derailed that. And there was also talk that the fans just didn't accept him because he was the one who ran junkyard dog out of mid South. But I think, I think Reed could have, I think Reed could have been NWA champion. How many volumes do you have of the best of the eighties? Just, Oh, I yeah. think it went up to like 43, 44. It was, it was funny. It was just, you know, it wasn't like, okay, I'm going to make it best of the eighties tape. It'd be like, you know, I had this six-hour tape with three matches on it that were worth keeping. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll put it on this tape, and we'll finish it out and just see what happens. And it turned into a thing. Yeah. Did you do that with other compilations, too? Uh, 90s and 70s, yeah. I mean, back then, you got to remember, the uh, the cost of maintaining footage was expensive. I right, mean, right. I, yeah, It's not like you can get a hard drive now. Exactly. I mean, you know, you go out and buy a videotape. I mean, I remember when I first started buying blank tapes in 1985, they were $6 each. $6 in 1985 probably comes out to right around twenty twenty one dollars yeah. in, you know, 2019, and it's not cheap, you know? No, it's not cheap. And, and like, 
thank God a lot of the stuff did not get lost. Some of it got taped over because the cost of maintaining was so. And no one ever knew the fact that they could have made money from these video libraries. No. No, I couldn't have known. No, I've said this before. I mean, one of the – in 1985, one of my friends came up to me, and I I had watched the first Battle of the Belts. And he was like, yeah, I recorded it if you want to watch it. And I was like, I've already seen it. That's okay. And, uh, you know, that was my mentality back then. And then finally, uh, you know, I started taping and and keeping wrestling matches because I was like, you know, wow, I I sure would like to see, wish I had, could see again some of the stuff from 79, 80, 81 again, which I can now do. But back then, I thought I would never see that stuff again. And I was like, maybe in five years, I want to see this match again. So I'll record it and keep it. And that's where it all got started. What was your huzzah moment? What was your holy grail? Oh, good question. Um, I can't think of anything that I said, wow, I would. this is what I want to see. And then years later, it came out. I would say the closest thing was... Mm, let me. I would was say the, the last battle. Chase, what's that? Was it the last battle of Atlanta? Or? No, I, you know what? I, the last battle of Atlanta when that came out, I was like, oh, cool. But I didn't like go to bed at night saying, gee, I wish I could see Tommy Rich and Buzz Sawyer in that cage match. Um, I would say when the night when the 1980s Shea Stadium show came out in pristine condition on the old WWE 24/7, that oh, was probably right. top of the list. I think it's on the network now, too. I believe... It actually isn't. I don't know why. I don't know why, but I know it's somewhere on some site. Yeah, I mean, it came out on on the 24-7, and they had Michael Cole and Mick Foley doing commentary, and they did a really good job. They weren't making fun of it, nor did they take it too seriously. They were lighthearted about it. This was like the Pouring say, Rain show, right? What's that? The Pouring Rain Shane Stadium show, right? But, well, no, it was um, it was it was just a, a regular nice summer night in 1980. I'm uh, I don't, I I don't love think the Pouring Rain one. I don't think so. I know it was really cold in 1972. It was a warm summer night in 1976, oh. and then it was oh, I remember the Florida Clash of Champions. That's the one. Okay, that was the the Super Bowl of wrestling, which was January 1978. Yeah, it was pouring rain. Yeah, because Barry was talking about it. Me and Barry are good friends. Yeah, Barry's a good dude. Yes. What are some of your favorite memories traveling the country? Anything crazy, Adam? <laughs> Rarely was a time that something crazy did not happen. Um, I mean, let's face it. You know, we're we're young. We're wrestling fans. We're I think stupid. We're, <laughs> yeah, that too. I mean, sometimes, you know, you take on – let's say you're a wrestling fan. Wrestlers have big personalities, so sometimes – wrestling fans adapt those personalities and then when they get together it everything kind of multiplies so <laughs> we, we i've had a lot of fun over the years i mean it was all it, it was all a long time ago you know it's pretty much over by the time the 80s ended pretty much 
I mean, I went to a couple of trips in the 90s and one in 2001. But, you know, I mean, I, just long story short, I mean, we had fun. Yeah, it must have been fun traveling the country, going from Atlanta to North Carolina to – it must have been. That – like, yeah, I, 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 I've never been, I've never seen a wrestling show in Atlanta or North Carolina, and to this day, Florida, to this day, I lament the fact that if I had been born like five years earlier, there is no question in my mind that I would have taken a trip with my friends up here, uh, like a 10 or 14 day trip on the road and hitting every territory, Louisiana, Florida, the Carolinas, Georgia, up and down. There's, in Memphis, there's no question we would have done oh, that. Oh, I, I didn't realize the U.S. is just so huge that I thought you've been everywhere. <laughs> no, I've, I've been a lot of places. I mean, like I said, I'm, I'm lucky. I've, I've seen, you know, wrestling yeah, shows in Memphis, Philly, Baltimore, uh, Cincinnati. What's Cincinnati like? <laughs> we went to the Brian Pillman Memorial Show oh. in, was it 2000 or 2001? It was wherever Xavier played basketball, and they didn't have an air conditioner, and it was unbelievably hot, and people were passing out around me. And when I say passing out, I'm not exaggerating. Was that the combined show with, like, a bunch of WWF, WCW talent? Yes, it was a Thursday night, and both promotions lent out talent so that uh, you know it's it, in memory of Brian Pillman yeah that's really interesting how that was that the Cincinnati Gardens uh no it was I think I think it was at the Xavier Fieldhouse oh okay because I heard of Cincinnati Gardens of course from Cornette Okay, yes, yeah. Cincinnati Gardens would have been cool. I mean, they had, you know, they used to have uh, the Sheik shows, and then Ole Anderson came in and started running, and uh, I know, like, the NWA under Crockett ran there, so I, I, that would have been a cool place to visit. So the closest to the South you've been is Baltimore? Um, Memphis. Oh, Memphis, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Memphis and uh, Smoky Mountain. Actually, I went to. I would say Knoxville was probably the the show the show for the South that I've been to, and plus I went to a few shows in Virginia on the Smoky Mountain show on the uh, tour. Excuse me, WP the WPIX convention. Uh let me see. They had w- WFIA convention. WFIA. That's what I meant. That's what I meant. Yeah, they would go to they would go all over the place. They'd go to Georgia, they'd go to New Orleans, but I that was a little bit before my time. What what was the convention team like when you were becoming a fan? Uh, let me see. A, a gentleman named John Gallagher, who was a, a really great guy, came up with the idea of having the UAWF, and unfortunately, it only it didn't really last that long. We had two conventions. One was in Memphis in 1988, and that's when I got to go to see the uh, the TV studio in Memphis. The other one was in Chicago in 1989. And just being honest, the one in 1989 was was nowhere near as successful as the one in 88. I mean, that was it after that. Yeah. 
And then conventions now are tenfold. Yeah, conventions now, it's just not the same thing. I mean, it now I know there's a convention coming up in April in Freehold, New Jersey, which, you know, is, I'm getting a lot of Twitter alerts about. And they're having, like, you know, 20 or 30, you know, WWF, WCW legends. It, it's just not the same to me. Like in line, trying to shake a guy's hand and get his autograph. You know, to me, the conventions were about hanging out with your friends and sharing wrestling stories and sometimes meeting one of the guys. And meeting one of the guys, if you'd just be hanging out, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah, and that's a lot of fun. Just to hang out with your friends, do a tape party. Yeah. Yeah, I, I miss that that whole tape party thing. That that term hasn't come up in a while, but those were always fun. Like like right now, I have a certified peer specialist, so I, I I'm showing like my my CP my one of my CPSs who's a huge wrestling fan. He goes back to he was in Erie, so he saw Stampede back in the eighties. And I'm showing him, like, Kenta Kobashi for the first time, and he's just, like, amazed. I mean, Kobashi was an unbelievable talent. You see, that's the thing. I think you guys are lucky. You get to see you get to see the current product, great, but you've got an entire catalog of everything that used to be out there, and, you know, we just didn't have that. Even when the, the videotapes first came out, you know, they – your your selection was limited. You didn't get to just buy like uh the the every show of of worldwide wrestling from 1984, which you know if you do your homework, you can do now. Right, and you can buy everything at the snap of a button. Exactly, exactly. You you don't even have to look for stuff anymore. It's 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 amazing. I, I can just like say Tenta Kobashi, Mr. Arumasawa. You know, it's up there on YouTube. It's up there on YouTube. How long, we we've talked about how long you've been watching pro wrestling. What are some of your first impressions and wrestlers you've seen? Well, my first impression, well, the first time I really watched wrestling, and this is kind of, it almost sounds made up because it's almost too perfect. I, we I lived in New York, and it was our last night of living in New York before moving to North Carolina, Massachusetts. And my parents went out, they were like out, you know, at a party saying goodbye to everyone. I was home with the babysitter and the babysitter was like, okay, it's time for you to go to bed or you can stay up and watch wrestling. Well, what's a kid going to do? Of course I want to stay up. And we watched, he watched wrestling. It was the IWA and I couldn't believe it. You know, I knew what boxing was, but I didn't really know what wrestling was. And these guys got in the ring and they had these crazy gimmicks and this guy, Johnny powers was wrestling someone and bulldog Brower like runs in with a chair and starts beating on him with a chair. And this just defeated my imagination. Like this couldn't possibly be happening. Uh, you know, you didn't see the guy from the Phillies going after the guy from the Mets with a chair. You didn't see uh, the other boxer, Muhammad Ali with a chair, but they were doing this in wrestling. And I thought it was crazy. And, 
you know, the next day the Mooners show up. And I'm like, hey, are you guys going to go see Bulldog Brower against Johnny Powers? And they're like, yeah, we are. <laughs> and my parents are like, what is going on here? And we moved to this place for North Attleboro, where they, where they had wrestling once a week down the street from where I lived. So oh, that's perfect. <laughs> yeah. I didn't get to go, but I mean, it was there. Right. You've seen a lot of wrestling promotions come and go through the years. Um, why is it less likely in this climate to return to the territorial days? Uh, the, the territories are not coming back. Um, I, I want, you know, when I say that, I'm not saying it to get people mad. If you look at a, 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 a picture of the, the earth, if you look at a globe, a map of the earth, I, I don't know how this didn't dawn on me when I was earlier, but like in the 80s, it came out as a theory that all the continents were connected. And I looked, and I'm like, wait a minute. They fit together like pieces of a puzzle. Of course they used to be connected. Why did it take so long for someone to figure that out for me? To say that the territories are coming back is like saying, yeah, one day the continents are all going to be together again. Imagine it's not going to happen. Imagine you know, yeah, I mean, why would someone start a promotion that runs regularly and only runs in a, a spe- specific area and that's it? And plus with the internet, you're, you're, there goes the territory right there. Part of the territories was that your television only ran in a certain region and that just can't happen anymore. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I loved the territories. I will always miss the territories. I, you know, I got in on the very end of the territories, like the last eight days. So that, that on the, the foundation that hold, held that system together is completely gone. Yes. Did you have a last in your fandom through the years? What was that like? Uh, definitely. Um, there were times... Uh, like in the 90s, I would record uh, Nitro and Raw, and you know, at some point, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna watch these things and record the good stuff and whatever. And I remember it was like 96, 97, it was 97. Um, I had a pile of tapes of Nitro. I, I had like two months to get caught up, and I was literally dreading it. I was like, you know, I don't want to do that. And it finally it dawned on me. I don't have to do it. I don't right. have to watch this. And th- that's when I stopped. I'm like, you know, I'm not Dave Meltzer. I am not obliged to watch this. Why am I forcing myself? Um, there have been other ones. I was out. I stopped. I just stopped watching the WWF in like 2002 because it sucked. And I got back to it in like 2007, 2008. Right now, I'm sort of in a lapse. Um, and it's not because I dislike the current WWE product that I do, but I only watch the uh, the monthly or so pay-per-views um, because when it comes to Raw and SmackDown, there's just – you know what? The WWE Network has almost become the enemy of the current product because if I've got two hours and I get to watch some wrestling, it's not going to be last Monday's Raw. It's going to be something else on the network or something else that right. I have on tape or DVD. Right, right. I totally agree with that. I'm not going to spend five hours a week watching Raw and SmackDown. I'm not. <laughs> it's just no, not. I'm not Dave Belfort. 
I'm not gonna kill myself watching all this shit. So. Yeah, it's it's not your job. It's not my job. And I, I mean, when I watch Boy, Raw, I, I don't envy Dave either. I don't envy <laughs> Dave either because he has this like godlike status where, you know, I, I'm not saying like Dave's a god or anything. You know, he has this like aura about him that sort of rubs people the wrong way. And I get why he loves people the wrong way, but I tend to think of all the good that Dave Meltzer's done in for for wrestling, and it outweighs the bad infinitely. I mean, I have been uh, I'm I was once good friends with Dave. Um, you know, we have kind of it's it, you know it's I've met him over thirty years ago. I mean, he and I used to room together on the road, and I've seen people. I mean, I don't even know how to describe it. It's it's like they're when they meet Dave, it's like they're meeting a demigod, right? And you know, I I've seen people just kind of fall apart in front of him. It's like they've they've met the Messiah. <laughs> it, it was just comical to and watch, you know. And it's just Dave Meltzer, just Dave, Dave being Dave, Meltzer. and Dave being Dave, and it's like. I'm gonna. I'm asking like my whole basis of the show I have tomorrow with Chris is the differences between the demigod like stuff with, with Dave and like with Wade and with to a lesser extent Steve Beverly and John Clark. You know where yeah. John. You know where John Clark's working now in Philadelphia. Yeah, he's he's a sports anchor, right? Yeah, he's a sports anchor, and I messaged him when 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 um. Chris and David did a Patreon show based on his Wrestling Flyer newsletter, and he responded to me saying, I did some wrestling stuff back in the 90s, but I'm not involved with it anymore. Well, that's the thing. To, I mean, I've been around Wade. I've been around – I haven't been around Steve Beverly, but I've been around John Gallagher. I mean, Dave, Dave's just at another level as far as, you know, people's reaction when they meet him. And I, I want to say this too. Dave is the nicest guy. He's laid back. He's, you know, Mr. California. I mean, I, I, I've been around Dave and I've just been like, man, how do you deal with this? Like, you know, people just get frothy when they're around him. Like they have so many questions. It's like, you know, they've, they've met the person, finally met the person who has all of the answers. And I, I don't know how he did it, but he did it. And like I said, he's just, he's a, he's a sweetheart. He's a really great guy. Yeah. He doesn't have all the answers because he deflects so much of it. Yeah. To other uh, people. What do you mean? You know, like the Brian and the like Semper BB and stuff like that. But he, he's such a nice guy. And, and I would like to meet him, but I'm not, I'm not like Gaga, you know. Yeah. No, and, and nor should, should anyone be. I mean, but I, I've seen it happen. <laughs> you know, people just, just like I said, it's like it, 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 the best analogy I can draw up. It's like if the most Catholic person you've ever met met the Pope. Right. Um, plugs. What are your plugs, John? Oh, my plugs. Um. If you've enjoyed me on this show, and I certainly hope you did, I invite you to sample the Stick to Wrestling podcast. And I'm very proud 
to have been approached by Brian Last and asked, you know, would you like to do a pod- podcast for Arcadian Vanguard? Because, I mean, let's let's face it, that's just the uh, the top shelf when it comes to wrestling podcasts. I mean, I'm in company with guys like Robert Fuller and Austin Idol and Jeff Bowdrin and Brian himself and Jim Cornette. Um, when, when it comes to just, you know, putting out something on this network. Um, good show. We really do tend to stick to wrestling. Uh, the topics vary right now. We're in the middle of doing a was involved in those matches. Um, and like I said, we've had different guests every week. We just had Scott Cornish last week. Uh, we, we had uh, uh, Thomas Bain a couple of weeks ago. And we're, we're getting different perspectives. So I, th- I, think you, I think any wrestling or classic wrestling fan would enjoy it. And like I said, I, I invite everyone to sample it. I hope you like it. Yes, and I think a part two will be included here on Meet the Press Slam, I would definitely like to have you back to talk of like a word association, almost. Like, I'll think of names and you say words. Would that be cool? I, I, am, I believe I would be capable of that, and I'd, I'd love to come back. I had a really good time. Thank you, John. You can follow me on Twitter at DJDCooksWrestle, and my music podcast, Horns Up, is at DJDCooksMusic. It's on Anchor.fm, which is, like, the biggest podcast platform. It's owned by Spotify. It's on every it's on every podcast platform. You can also go to John's Sick the Wrestling Facebook group as well. And I am on Twitter. Uh, if you look up John McAdam, you'll see a picture of Moondog Maine hitting Magnificent Morocco in the face with a chair. And I'm not to- terribly active on Twitter, but if you want to give it a try, go ahead. Yes, at John McAdam. Yeah, yeah. Actually, the the, the it's it's under an old pseudonym of mine, CC Milani. But if you if John McAdams in there, if you do a search, you'll be able to come up with it. CC Milani. Okay, cool. I'll definitely give you a follow. And tomorrow, I think I already follow you because I think I do. Um, but I follow a lot of accounts. All right. Um, tomorrow I'll be having Chris Zellner on Marco Radio and on the podcast here. We'll be talking in depth about the lessons he's learned from between the sheets and all. Following completely damaged radio, and they're having Bay Ragney come on, Chubby Dudley. Nice. So, check out Cameron's show at Completely Damaged. Thank you, John, for joining me. Hey, thank you for having me, man. Have a good time.